There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's only one word that matters in business in the early days, and that is the word survival. Whilst you're alive, throw yourself 100% into whatever you do and make the best of this wonderful life that we all lead. Hello and welcome to the Voom podcast, the show exploring disruptive business, past, present and future, with the world's most exciting entrepreneurs in conversation. I'm Nikki Beatty and coming up on the show today, we've got a special report from Virgin Media Business's Voom tour as we meet our first set of pitch winners who sat down for brunch with Richard Branson last week. But in the studio, we're taking a trip into the industry of sports and fitness to welcome two brilliant entrepreneurs from very different corners of a booming market. My first guest is one of British cycling's biggest success stories. Nope, not Bradley Wiggins or Chris Hoy, but the founder of Rafa, a cycling apparel company that started in 2004 and over the past 13 years has become one of the sport's most fashionable and desirable brands. Today, Rafa combines high-end roadwear with online and physical retail, luxury travel and a global cycling club. And only a few weeks ago, added further fuel to expansion plans by taking on new partners in a reported £200 million deal. I'm very pleased to welcome Rafa founder and chief exec, Simon Mottram. Hello to you. Hello. It sounds like this is an exciting time for you then. Yeah, totally. It's completely exciting. It's been exciting for 13 years, to be honest, or mm. 13 and a half years, because we've just been on this amazing wave of growth of cycling all over the world. Um, so there's never been a, an exciting time. I can't even imagine what that feels like. And what is the deal that I just referred to? Uh, we actually sold a majority stake in the company to a family office from the US called RZC, RZC in English, mm -hmm. um, who uh, have become my new partners in taking it to the next level. But you remain chief exec? Chief exec, shareholder, yeah. So you got the style of the sport covered off for us today, but nutrition, health and fitness is another bubbling area of the industry and home to many innovative companies. In days gone by, sports analysis was a thing limited to high-performance athletes, but with the rise of things like fitness trackers and heart rate monitors, a whole new consumer sector has opened and we've become more obsessed with understanding our own bodies. But forget pedometers and Fitbits. My next guest thinks the key to training and diet could lie deeper. In your genes. His name is Avi Lazaro and he's the founder of a company called DNA Fit. Welcome to the show, Avi. Thank you for having me here. So, Avi, if I want to do DNA Fit, what happens? So doing DNA fit is really easy. It's uh, you, you either buy it online or you pick it up from a nutritionist, personal trainer, or if you're in a workplace that uses it for an employee wellness program, you can pick it up there too. What is it then? Uh, it's essentially it's if you visual um, a, a DNA testing swab, it's a bit like an earbud, a Q-tip, and uh, the process is very easy. You simply rub that in inside of your cheek for no more than 30 seconds. You put it back in the packaging that comes with the box. 
and send it to our amazing laboratory and you have your results in 10 days. We are empowering both athletes as well as consumers to make the best of the information they have about their body. And when it comes to professional sporting, of course, the difference, uh, you know, by understanding more about your body up front can be huge. So it can take somebody from being a non-medalist to a medalist, from a silver medalist to a gold medalist. And we often get asked about, you know, how much of genetics is a contribution versus the environment and our response to that is we believe roughly 50 50 so a good example is if you take mo farah sir mo farah everybody knows him as being a perfect athlete obviously having amazing genes and likely an amazing environment but the truth is is mo farah also has a brother who no one's ever heard of and i would say that mo farah's brother's genes twin brother mm. is probably just as amazing but he wasn't in the right environment so I'm looking forward to learning more about what makes both of your businesses and companies tick. I want to dive straight into the questions. Why do you think that sports and fitness is such a thriving industry right now? Why is it so exciting? Well, clearly there's a more and more active population in most parts of the world and health and well-being has become ever more interesting for people. I suspect it's part of natural development, isn't it? As economies grow and mature and develop, people go from wanting things to starting to feel more in touch with experiences and how they feel about themselves. So they're looking for well-being rather than just stuff. Um, and I think uh, sport plays a key role in that. You know, if you feel good, if you're fit and you feel good, then you're happier as a person. And uh, in a way that buying a new, new watch probably doesn't make you happy for very long. Unless it's a Fitbit or something and it contributes to your well-being. From our perspective, I think thanks very much to the likes of Fitbit because what Fitbit has done is branded old technology, made it look cool. And now what's happened is in the mass consumer marketplace, people are now doing their 10,000 steps and now thinking, wow, what else can I now do? Because the 10,000 step thing is like, so what, I've done it, I do it, that's great, what's next? And I think that all gets into proactive health monitoring. What, what can I actually do next to better my health? But that's... It's very general, isn't it? And as your company is proving, one size does not fit all, RV. So, so how does it work when you tailor somebody's exercise or nutrition programme? Well, let me start by talking about myself and my own exercise. So as a, a growing 42-year-aged man, I don't say old man, I say aged <laughs> man, uh, you know, I, I find that, you know, my, my biggest commodity is time. I don't have any enough of it. You know, I'm always busy. I want to try to keep healthy. I need to stay on brand, but not just stay on brand. I mean, I, I actually like doing exercise because it's, right, it's the right thing for your what body. What do you to, do? I go to the gym, I run. Yeah, but what do you do in the gym? I, typically, I get on a treadmill. I do resistance exercises. Uh, you know, it varies. You know, I like going to group exercise classes because it's more motivational for me. But but actually, when I go to any of these classes or when I go to the gym, I want to make sure that what I'm doing is right for my body. So nine out of ten times, big generalization, I know you go to a personal trainer, personal trainer says do X, Y, and Z. Mm. Why? Because it's worked with nine of these ten clients. But actually, we all are different. And as in parallel the science is emerging and genetics is becoming better understood, we're starting to realize that's not the case. And so the point is, is why is there an emergence of genetics and why will this become the de facto standard? It's because there's no such thing as a one-size-fits-all approach. So if I took a swab of my inner cheek and so did Simon and we sent them off and we paid our money, I might all my life have thought that my running along the River Thames is the best thing for my body, but your test may show that high-impact five minutes work is going to be a lot better. Could that happen? Well, essentially, we have two distinct reports currently. One is a nutrition 
a report. The other mm. one is a fitness report. So one is, what, of course, how you eat correctly for your genetics. The other one is how you exercise correctly for your genetics. So last year, DNA Fit was the first company globally to publish the world's first exercise genetic intervention study. Essentially, we took just under 100 individuals, and in sports science terms, we did two major measurements. One of them is a counter-movement jump to test explosive power. The other is an aerobike test for uh, endurance. So we did these measurements on the cohort. We then put them onto a 12-week intervention study. And after the 12 weeks, we remeasured that whole group back on those two metrics. And we found that the individuals that were matched to the power endurance algorithm that we provide had three times the benefit than the ones that didn't. And that was huge. I mean, in terms of the academic community, it was great for us as a company because, you know, you always have skeptics with new technology. And in the academic world, you know, we kind of quietened the skeptics. Uh, the, the study has been obviously referenced in a number of other publications. So the science is moving forward. So to answer your question, I'm very, very high endurance in, my, in that particular panel we report on. So when I go to the gym or when I do exercise, I try to do everything that's much more endurance-based. Um, and just to say, genetics isn't everything. We, it's not predeterministic. It doesn't tell you what you should play in terms of sport, what position you should play in terms of sport. It gives you information which you didn't have before, which you can make informed decisions to make the right choices to get your goals quicker. Does that interest you, Simon? Uh, uh, not particularly. <laughs> I, I, I think it's very interesting as a concept, and I think for lots of people it's more and more interesting, so I, I'm, I'm sure it's very successful. I think there's a slight danger that we become more and more hyper-concerned with uber analysis, you know, getting deeper and deeper into sort of minute changes and constant improvement whereas we know the thing that's going to make most people fitter in general and happier and have more well-being is doing some exercise if you just do some exercise if we just walked a bit more if we just you know did half an hour exercise three times a week the the population as a whole would be happier and and, and more fulfilled and there's a there's a bit of a divide between to, uh, that i see between people who are constantly seeking better and better improvements mm. where this sort of thing is really really helpful but the mass population who are increasingly lethargic and might have the gym membership and then lapse after two months and never go back. And they haven't brought exercise into their life. And I think there's a fundamental problem that lots of exercise is inherently incredibly boring. So, so, so I, I agree with what you're saying. I think that living a sedentary lifestyle, you know, versus not, I mean, yeah. it's clear that exercise is, some exercise is better than no exercise. But let's be clear that when you do exercise, let's do it right so you get the best effects so you can continue to do exercise. And that's my point, really, I think. We come back to exercise in a moment, um, when you started your companies, you both obviously saw opportunities. What's interesting is that you've had to bring disruptive thinking to your sectors. Simon, when Rafa was founded, you were a challenger brand, weren't you, to some huge cycling companies that had been around for decades and you were bravely selling high-end products, weren't you? Isn't that how um, it began? I think we were a challenger brand to a whole industry, but there weren't huge brands that were doing really well in cycling. Were there huge brands a, that offered cycling goods? There then? were lots of bike brands, yeah. yeah. So, you know, some big American bike brands that I won't name. But um, there were some significant companies, but they weren't really consumer-facing, consumer-loved brands. Um, so I think we challenged the whole industry rather than just the big established players. And, Arvi, as we know, you're a change agent because you're disrupting ideas around sports and fitness with genetics. Do you both identify with being disruptors, Avi? 
Absolutely. I think core to our, our, our ethos and everything we do as a company is to disrupt the fitness industry. So why would you go to a gym in the UK? There's 9.2 million gym members and growing. Why would you go to the gym without having this extra armory of information that's going to make the task of whatever your goal is easier to obtain? So in terms of disrupting the industry and making sure that everybody does a DNA test prior to starting their fitness regime, absolutely on, on, on track with our objectives. Simon, when you started Rafa, you were a branding and marketing consultant. How did you go from that to cycling? Uh, I had to learn a lot because uh, I had no skills in retail or product design, product development, um, e-commerce, any of the thing, even starting a business. You know, I hadn't done that before. So what I had was a passion for the sport itself and being a consumer myself. So I was an avid cyclist, still am. Um, and I managed to combine my professional experience around brand development and marketing and how you, how do you create desire and create aspiration from consumers with a total passion for the subject matter. And how did you do that? So I, I just I became obsessed by it. And I think, you know, one of the things that anybody who starts, particularly as a disruptor, you have to be is utterly obsessed. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, you have to become slightly boring about it. You know, I, I, there were many months and many years where the only thing I spoke about, and it's probably still true, <laughs> was cycling and this idea for this business that I had. And I, you know, stretched my marriage. And <laughs> but you have to do that. You have to push and push and push and be relentless to get there. And that's how we've got there. And and you knew from the very beginning that you wanted initially, anyway, for it to be the gear, the the, the jerseys and the actual clothing, did you? Or... No, not, no, it was always a bad experience, not just product. So um, in my because my professional life was all around future trends and consumers and how they relate to brands, it was clear that even then, back in 2003, there was a finite growth of product. And people don't really buy products. They buy products as a metaphor for something else and they buy them wrapped up in experiences. Mm -hmm. So from day one, we were an experiential brand. We started out with a month-long exhibition quite near here where it was an exhibition about the Tour de France and it was coffee on sale and we showed the tour every day and we said, come and look at this amazing stuff and we've you, got products there. Did you have cyclists in that tour wearing your products then or was it just Not incidental? Not for the first few weeks, no. <laughs> oh, no, God, no, no, no. We had a month-long attempt to, to get the first customers right. so no we just said look this is the sport it's an amazing thing you should enjoy it if you like it then we love it too and here's some products that we've made and gradually built the customer base that way and those products were high-end high design they are they're high-end compared to the slightly appalling products that were on the market at the time um i don't think i mean they, they are premium products they weren't sort of out there sort of uber luxury but mm. compared to cycling they did seem to be um the press have described you as uh, well as rafa as a marmite brand um love it or hate it do you see that as a good thing yeah i think i think you don't want the haters to outweigh the lovers of course and um but i think you have to stand for something the best brands do have detractors. Um, you know, they force you to take sides. And uh, we don't want to force that too much. But absolutely, we're a brand that some people love and some people really don't like. Maybe we need to talk for people listening a little bit about what it would be that they don't like. Is it that, you know, it's a certain type of cyclist that can, number one, afford that gear? Mm. And what's that like? Is that what it's about? Just give Sometimes. us an idea. I think it varies in parts of the world. In some parts of the world, we're not a Marmite brand. Mm -hmm. And there probably isn't Marmite, to be honest. In parts of Asia, like it's... Seoul. 
like Seoul in Korea, for yeah. example. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, I think we're just seen as being the best, and they mm. want the best, and so they buy Rafa. And it's not as simple as that, but there's there's much less of the side in places like the UK and the US, where there is a very um, particular type of consumer who doesn't like doesn't like challenger brands, doesn't like disruptors, doesn't like people who are pretentious or presumptuous. Um, we presumed to connect around the sport when most brands just wanted to say, buy our product. And I think some people don't like that. So if you go out to change things, there are people who who don't respond well to that. And I think that's what most of it comes down to. It's like, you know, who the, who the hell do they think they are? <laughs> we, we have that expression quite often. <laughs> Avi, on the subject of marketing, you actually did a campaign with Marmite, didn't you? We did, actually. Uh, you know, we, we, we thought that uh, a great way to position the DNA Fit brand into the minds of the UK consumer and get our brand into every household, so to speak, would be to uh, team up with uh, Unilever and Marmite. So that's exactly what we did. And over about 8,000 hours worth of research and a one-year-long project, uh, we did a project called the Marmite Gene Project in which we helped the company determine whether there was a taste preference to disliking or liking Marmite and uh, you'll be pleased to know there is. There really <laughs> genuinely is. No, absolutely. There's, there's a number of, uh, of, of SNPs, uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms, which are essentially the way genes express themselves that demonstrate that if you're a Marmite hater, there's still hope for you yet. <laughs> <laughs> can you test it for Rafa as well? We, we, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, DNA Fit RV is a relatively young company and given the uniqueness of the business, how have you approached branding or how are you approaching it? So for me, you know, as more and more companies start to attempt to do what we do, the branding is very important and uh, we, we like to continue to position ourselves as the pioneering brand. And we do that, of course, by furthering the research. So the Unilever story was a way we did research. Okay, it's a bit of fun research, but it has commercial real application. Uh, you know, it sets the scene for uh, the way companies might change the way they design food, for example. There is a, a part of me, and I would imagine other people listening to this podcast, that thinks, hang on a minute, I'm sending off my DNA to a company. I mean, what could they use it for? It could, there could be something really dark involved with that. That's that's a really great point. I mean, people always ask about uh, data. Well, always ask. We get often we, we get often asked about data information security. So um, we work with uh, everybody from royals to uh, high end sports personalities to the general consumer, where data is equally as important. And as you'd expect, a company like ourselves uh, subscribe to data protection policies. You've got the new European policy coming out now, GDPR, which we prepped up for and ready to go. And of course, we're implementing something called ISO twenty seven thousand and one which is the framework architecture that good companies would implement if they really are serious about data information security. So we're in the process. We hope to get that in the first quarter next year and, you know, take that component very seriously. No, uh, no, no dark science, by the way, no dark science. Okay. <laughs> so what would you both say are the most important things that a startup needs to bear in mind in, in terms of getting the brand and the messaging right, Simon? Uh, I think there are three or four things. I think the first thing you have to understand is the customer. And it's a trite expression, know your customer, but and it's at the, the cornerstone of marketing. But you can't underestimate it. You can't underestimate how important it is to get deep inside the mind and the life of the customer. And if you don't completely get that and, and completely take it as your own, then it's very hard to innovate or to create products and services that really ring true. In your case, you were that person, though, Still weren't am. you? Yes, yes, yes. I'm a slightly older version of that person. Yes, <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. So you, you have to know what the instincts are. If you are the customer, 
every decision you make around every single detail of the customer experience can be right because it's right for you. you just got to hope there are more people like you. In exactly, and that was my biggest worry for the first few years of Rafa was maybe there's just a few thousand of us mm-hmm. and it turns out there are many million, so it's okay. But, um, but absolutely, so it starts with totally understanding your customer. The second thing is you have to have some sense of differentiation, some sense of how your value proposition is different. But the really great brands we remember are the ones that went out there and did it first and were differentiated. So being first and being different, I think, is so, so important. And consumers don't have much time for very much these days. Um, so they want something that's different and that cuts through. So you, you just have to keep clinging to that. We have a core value at Rafa, which is think different. Um, think think for yourself and you just have to do that. Think different and think for yourself. That's brilliant. What about you, Arvi, in terms of getting the brand and the messaging right? So, uh, firstly, I think that it's all about having the vision to just make sure that what you see you can you can do. I mean, it's core to everything that I believe in, uh, in everything I've achieved historically in business. is all about having the foresight to see it make, and make it happen. Um, and that's the same with the brand. You know, I, I, for example, I once, when we first started four and a half years ago, wanted to see our brand, you know, on one of those, uh, on a football pitch. You know, when you have the electronic advertising going around the, fi- the pitch. I'm not a big football fan, by the way, I have to say, but you know, I just happen to work with a lot of sports people through what I do. And then, you know, having that vision, we, we made our brand appear there. And, and the more we push the boundaries of getting our brand to be associated to certain things, almost the easier it becomes somehow. Um, and it's making sure, of course, that you place the brand in the right place as well, because you don't want to have a negative effect of what your you know, brand is. Getting the marketing message right and learning to pitch your business is a big part of the Voom campaign. Over the past few months, the Voom tour has been visiting cities across the UK and Ireland, holding workshops, seminars and mini-pitching competitions, with some brilliant businesses getting involved. Last week's winners from those competitions were rounded up for a very special brunch meeting. Here's our Voom reporter, Chris Reid, to tell us more. So it's been an amazing few weeks on the Voom tour. I've been the length and the breadth of the country and the highlight of each of our Voom stops has been our pitch competitions. We've had literally hundreds of people enter these competitions. Each of the pitchers had two minutes each to convince the judges that they should go through and win £5,000 and brunch with Branson, which is where I am today. Yeah, well, I get incredibly excited meeting small businesses and entrepreneurs who sign up to Voom because they're really the backbone of the UK economy. Their energy, their enthusiasm is truly infectious. There's a real buzz about the place, and in particular because um, already they're getting some really decent and very candid advice and support from Richard Branson, and he's been amazing answering some questions ranging from uh, what makes him sweat through to advice to someone who's dyslexic setting up their own business. And what has really been exciting is just how much the companies have grown and changed and even found investment since we last met them. So I'm Dan, I'm from Trekking Herd, which is an adventure app for backpackers and outdoor sport enthusiasts. So we won the Boom competition in Cardiff last week, so it's just been one week. And since then we've had um, investors for in. The phone's been ringing constantly with newspapers, online our schools. It's been absolutely fantastic coverage, it's been superb. Uh, Roseanne Longmore, Coral Flow. Since the Voom competition, the coverage was amazing and we opened our seed round and we closed with three times more funding than we actually initially required. In addition to this, uh, the coverage meant that mothers all over Ireland have contacted us to take part in our beta testing, which is really incredible. My name is Michaela Wilson and I am co-founder of St. Ames, a luxury chocolate company. 
since we won Vu in London, we have had contacts from a lot of people from abroad, specifically America and the UAE. Really, really great potential business partners. My name is Becca Hume and the company is Tap SOS. This morning's been brilliant. It was fun meeting Richard Bronson just face to face. I mean, not everyone gets that opportunity, so it was brilliant just to be able to share our story. Max Hayden, the name of the company is Storage Shepherd. This morning's been brilliant. I mean, who, who doesn't want to meet the king of uh, entrepreneurship, Richard Branson? He was so personable and he's genuinely contributed to what, what we're going to do in the future as well. My name's Jordan Grayson and I am the co-founder of Project Jack Fruit. It was a little bit surreal, so we gave him our product uh, to take home and he had a look at it, handled it, which was really cool. Um, he even gave us some advice on the packaging, so we're going to use that to, to make it more attractive to the consumer. It's Dave Linton, and the company is called Madlug, which stands for Make a Difference Luggage. Well, I mean, I've, I've always been um, a learner, and learning from people like Richard Branson and books on how to be an entrepreneur. And so now that I'm doing it, to get to have breakfast or brunch with him has just been amazing. And the input that he, he gave us this morning was just valuable. Well, look, it's always a, a great privilege to meet the boom entrepreneurs, and uh, this was no exception. I mean, the, the, you know, they were very diverse and wonderful ideas, each one of them fulfilling gaps in people's lives and trying to make people's lives better, and all of them young, enthusiastic, and determined to be successful. Um, and I look forward to sort of following their careers in the years to come. You know, there was one lad who has come up with an idea to use people's flats and homes for extra storage at a cheaper price than the conventional storage places. Uh, you know, I thought that that was a good move into the sharing economy. Another person who was helping people who were traveling the world, particularly younger people, hitchhikers and so on, putting people in touch with each other. And another wonderful lady who was monitoring people who were breastfeeding and making sure that enough milk was coming out for the babies and monitoring how much milk was coming out. And I think that could be incredibly successful and incredibly worthwhile. And um, so a wonderful variety of people with different ideas. So thank you very much, Richard Branson, taking time out of your autobiography launch to meet these entrepreneurs who really appreciated genuine words of wisdom, I think. And obviously they got there by winning their pitch competition. Uh, we've got two more lined up in Scotland, in Glasgow and Dundee. If you're a Scottish startup and you would like to win £5,000 and get to meet Richard Branson uh, early next year, check out Voom Tour online, upload your pitch entry, sign up to the Voom Pioneers community and you could be here next year. Thanks to Chris Reed, our Voom man on the road. We've got more from him coming up later in the show. And congratulations to all those businesses who won brunch with Branson this week. And I hope he treated you well. If you'd like to get involved at the next tour stops, just search Voom for more information. You're listening to the Boom Podcast from Virgin Media Business with me, Nikki Beatty. It's a sports and fitness special with Simon Mottram from Rafa and Avi Lassero from DNA Fit. The next thing I want to talk about today is collaboration. Simon, Rafa as a company has done a lot of collaborations. You've designed apparel alongside British designer Paul Smith. You've collaborated with big names in cycling, Bradley Wiggins. Um, there's a Team Wiggins collection. You sponsored Team Sky for a period. Has that collaboration been a, a key factor in your success, do you think? 
I think all of them are helpful. I think they all add something to the brand. If And collaborations are very easy to get wrong, so you have to have a complementary set of skills. Have you ever got one wrong? Uh, no, because we've chosen them very carefully, um, and we try not to do too many of them. I think brands fall into a trap of trying to, trying to bolt on too much, and I think consumers can't really understand a lot of them. So we're, we're very circumspect. We... We more often than not we'll collaborate with people from outside of the world of cycling because that way we become more culturally relevant and we take cycling, which is still somewhat niche a pastime. We try and make it more culturally relevant. Uh, and that's where the Paul Smith thing was great. Um, we're currently collaborating with Herman Miller, who are amazing furniture designers. and we've. What are you doing with them? Well, we've done a number of things. We've actually um, designed some products, some cycling products um, with them, but we've also developed uh, furniture for our, some of our clubhouses. So our newly opened Los Angeles clubhouse has a whole load of Eames furniture. Oh. Herman Miller are the licensee for oh. Eames furniture. And some, we're thinking about actually selling it to customers because we have particular fabrics on it and a particular design, which is very, very um, resonant with our customers. So Herman Miller's quite interesting. We're also working with Norman Foster, you know, the world's greatest architect. And do you have anything that can make us cycle more efficiently and faster that's not clothing? The thing... Um, the th- not really. I mean, the, the thing that um, we would always focus on is getting enjoyment out of the sport. And there's so many barriers to riding a bike, which you, I don't know, either, either you cycle, but... I, I don't do wheels. Yeah, so I'm lots, not so to lots be of people on any wheels. Well, there you go. So the, the, even riding is a challenge, and then riding in the city is often a challenge. And then if you're riding in the city, wearing the right gear and how you fix the bike, and what are all those funny signals, and how do you stay safe? And there are so many things that we need to break down. And our job as a brand, because we want the sport to be the most popular sport in the world, and the sport being all of us riding, not mm. just Bradley Wiggins riding, is to help break down those barriers and take people on that journey. So that's what I think is the most interesting thing is getting people to to learn more about it and to fall in love with it. And if people fall in love with riding a bike, which most people who try it do, then they all ride for the rest of their lives. Avi, in terms of collaboration, how does it work for DNA Fit? So as a company, we do do a lot of collaborations. We work with professional sports and professional sports athletes to effectively collaborate so they can pioneer in their particular sport. We can then learn from working with them and working with that sporting segment to then drop that back down as a halo effect to our consumer. Haven't you worked with a restaurant? Yeah, we did a great partnership with a company called Vita Mojo recently. Uh, Vita Mojo have uh, three or four restaurants here in central London and are expanding quite rapidly. They did, uh, I think they just closed a big uh, three and a half million pound crowdsourcing round, which is one of the biggest that exists. And what they do is they have a really innovative app in which you can go into one of their restaurants and you can, you know, design your food based on your macronutrients. And it's not one of these services where they, you know, someone puts it to you in, you know, in a courier and it's not very tasty or, or, or you know, it's in this sort of terrible packaging. It's actually very good food. You go in there, you choose your menu, and it gets designed to your macros. And our partnership with them was essentially based on your genetic macronutrient calculations. We then tweak it further. So collaboration is also key within successful companies, between teams of different skills. Um, Simon, what has been your approach to building a successful team, or teams, in fact, and in a cross-discipline company, if you have that? Yeah, we're... we're pretty unique in our business uh, in our industry because we are direct consumer and we 
do almost everything ourselves. So we don't outsource really anything that we do apart from the actual manufacturing of the products where we have factory partners. So anything that we do around marketing or web development or running our retail sites or distribution, we do it ourselves. So we've had to build very different teams across the whole organisation and we're also 75% international outside the UK and have been for 10 years. So it's a complicated international scene as well. The thing that makes all that work and the glue that holds it together is the culture of the company. And um, our our, uh, employees all ride um, and we make riding a part of the everyday life of of our employees. How many employees do you have, by the way? Uh, including the retail shops, we've got about 500 globally. Um, actually, this Wednesday, we do a quarterly ride where we close the office down, our head office in London up the road. Uh, we close the office down, and the 200-odd staff who are in head office, we all go for a ride together. Where? Um, this Wednesday, we're going down to Surrey. We tend to go out to different parts of, of Lon- outside of London. Oh, Some people will ride 10 miles. Some people will ride 100 miles, but we all meet at some point on the ride and then we all have lunch together. And it's just a key part of connecting with the customer's experience and testing the product. You're listening to the Voom podcast and today is a sport and fitness special. Now, another area of the sporting world that's home to much innovation is motorsport. We sent our Voom reporter Chris Reed to meet Sylvain Filippi, a petrol head gone green from Virgin's Formula E team. So we're here today at the buzzing headquarters of uh, Virgin's Formula E team. Hello, Silva. Hello, hello. We're here really to talk about sort of disruption in, I guess, one of the world's newest sports. Tell me, what was your journey to uh, Formula E? What's what's brought you here today? It was a long journey, I guess, so I'll I'll try to keep it short. Um, I've been um, uh, working in the automotive industry for almost 15 years, I think now. And very clearly, um, it became really apparent to me uh, from a long time ago that electric cars would be the, the solution for the future. And um, through work in, in consulting and so on, I, I advised a lot of manufacturers on electric vehicle technologies. And um, back in 2009, um, uh, with a friend of mine, we had the um, crazy idea to start an electric car um, championship called the EV Cup. And it was basically a similar idea to Formula E, but on a much smaller scale. So anyway, long story short, this happened, and then the FI came up with the... Uh, a tender for Formula E, and I got involved in that. And then um, I, I got to meet with some people at Virgin who said, you know, would like to um, run a team, but it would be great if we could work together. And it was a great opportunity for me because uh, Virgin is a fantastic brand um, and a fantastic platform um, to, to demonstrate what, uh, what we are doing. So it was really obvious. Fantastic. I mean, if the history of electric cars in Britain was, was basically milk floats. For, yeah. for many years. I mean, what sort of timescale were the car companies thinking of that when you started working with them? Were they planning 20 years, 30 years, 40 years into the future? Roughly, you know, in, in 2007, 8 and 9, they knew that if they were to comply with um, average emissions for their fleet, they would have to electrify more and more of their of their models. Um, but what's been really interesting is that in the, in the last five years, while all this has been happening and while Formula E, we've been working on launching Formula E, um, the technology also has developed uh, really, really, really fast. So not only on the on the battery side, uh, which is very important, where the energy density is, keeps improving every year and every year, which um, uh, makes electric cars um, a lot more feasible. But also, um, there's been many advances on on the on the efficiency of motors, inverters, or the other elements that you find in an electric car. Which means that now uh, you get the emergence of Tesla and and, uh, and other car makers coming in, and it's not possible today to produce a really compelling car 
um, fully electric. So the consequence is that a lot of car manufacturers are accelerating their product planning and their, their product um, rollout of electric cars. So we have to develop the tech that is relevant for the car manufacturers and we have to make a, develop a sport that is really, really exciting. But even in developing the sport, I mean, we've seen some huge innovations. I mean, you've gone from no fans to, as I said, an international uh, sport through, you know, all sorts of innovations, perhaps the marketing innovations. I know with Formula E, you have um, uh, a fan boost, which means that actually the fans can influence the outcome of a race. I mean, what, what exactly is it? How does it work? So FanBoost is an innovation um, launched by Formula E, and, and we think it's really cool. Um, it's basically a way where um, anyone around the world can vote for their favorite drivers through social media, uh, Twitter mainly, um, and um, they can vote, I think the window opens 10 days before a race, and then... Um, and when it, gi- the v- it gives them more power, gives drivers more power? Yes, yeah, so or? when the vote closes, basically the top three drivers out of 20 who get the most votes gets uh, an extra boost of power during that particular race. So, so it's, almost, it's almost live. And it's really significant. It's an extra um, 30 kilowatt of, um, of power for about five seconds, which in most conditions is enough for one overtake. So it makes a difference on track. I'm not quite sure if that's... A, is that a good thing or a bad thing, do you think? Yes, the fan boost, it was funny at the beginning when we launched the championship fan boost, it was a very... Um, uh, Subject of, subject of contention a bit because some the, the hardcore fan enthusiasts thought it's a gimmick it's, it detracts from the racing and so on but at the end of the day we stuck with it because we thought you know you look at the bigger picture what are we trying to do we're trying to showcase electric vehicle tech who are we aiming that sport to, to you know and what we're trying to do is reach the biggest possible audience um, and and convince them and make them realize that electric cars are really cool, really fast, and, and, and so on. But the bigger picture, beyond sports and beyond media, it just shows once again that the power of social media and the power of giving your fans, whether they're fans, clients, followers, whatever they might be, giving them a real tool to interact with your company is really meaningful and actually makes a difference. And uh, you know, looking at um, sort of your experience in sort of technology and motorsport, um, um, Formula E was, was, was brand new four years ago, so I'm guessing that there was opportunities to, to do some massive innovation three years ago, not quite so much two years ago, a little bit less, a little bit less. How are you constantly improving things? Is it, is it the Brailsford approach, or can you make, still make massive jumps in terms of technology and innovation, the sorts of things that you're working on? Yeah, Formula E is really exciting from a technology point of view. First, by definition, it's motorsport. By definition, you're always innovating every year. You develop a new car, um, but it's not only the car, it's the operations, the IT that you run trackside. There are many, many manufacturers that can influence performance. But going back to the car, you always find ways to improve what you're doing um, within the limits of the regulations imposed by the FIA. But what makes Formula e so interesting is that compared to most other motorsport series, while we do that, the technology itself is also progressing very rapidly. So if you're developing internal combustion engines, there are some basic rules of, of, of physics that are there and you're just improving on that. But in our case, while we develop our cars, we also keep talking to the main suppliers and also battery energy density is, is increasing. The power density of motors is increasing so we can have more powerful motors that are way far less. Um, so it's almost a double, there's a dual path of technology innovation that we have to constantly monitor. So it's difficult, but that's what we like. It's the challenge. Great stuff. And you know, where do the ideas come from for innovation? And you know, what sort of advice would you give to other companies, if you like, who are constantly looking for ways to innovate and improve? So the challenge is always 
to keep a very open mind. And it's easier um, said than done, but it's really important because it's too easy to look back at what you've done and um, have, uh, basically implementing marginal gains on this. And you feel good, you feel like you're improving. But we live in a world where so much technology is disrupted every minute, you know. Um, and that's only electric vehicle technology for sure. But you look at IT, you look at many other sectors, the sector of energy, like pretty much anything that touches our lives is being disrupted. So you need to always find the time, and it's again easier said than done, to, to make sure that you know what's happening in your industry and see where the next disruption is going to come from. Um, and that will become, see that as an opportunity, not as a threat, uh, because you can, you can then learn from that and, and improve your own business. Thanks there to Sylvain Filippi, CTO of Virgin's e-racing team. If you want to find out more about them and the innovation happening in electric racing, just head to ds-virginracing.com. Back in the studio now with my guest Simon Mottram from Rafa and Arvi Lazaro from DNA Fit. And the next thing I'd like to talk about with you guys is do you both think that entrepreneurship in general requires a certain type of mindset? Arvi? Uh, absolutely. I think the mindset is uh, fail faster. It's a cliche that everyone says, but a lot of people just certainly get disappointed when they fail at something. I think if you're going to fail, you're going to try the next thing quicker. I think the mindset has to be be relentless. Don't stop until you get your goals. But at the same time in saying that, I think you also need to be realistic with yourself. You know, So for example, if you believe in something so much that you can't see it really not being a success because you're just blinded by the fact that you just believe in it too much and that could be, you know, have a negative effect. But I think just be relentless, go for what you believe in and surround yourself with a family and, you know, and, and they'll help you uh, see, see your objectives through. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree, agree with all of that. I think confidence is is the most important thing, probably. You have to have the confidence to be relentless and to keep going for it. And if it goes wrong, to try again. Um, and that's that's the key quality. How have you got over times when things have gone wrong? Can you can you think of a time when something has I, not happened the way you wanted it? I'm uh, an eternal optimist, and I would say that you know my glass isn't half full; it's always overflowing. So I'm always thinking about the next thing. So when things go wrong, you've almost already moved on to the next challenge, um, and you just don't let you don't dwell on the things that have gone wrong. You keep moving. We've been fortunate that not that many things have gone wrong. We've had a number of product challenges along the way, but you're already on seasons three or four in the future so you, you know you don't you don't dwell on it so what are you most proud about regarding your business simon most proud about the fact that we have an amazing group of customers we're direct to consumer we have hundreds of thousands of customers who see something very valuable in what we do and over 13,000 of those customers are members of our brand. And I think the, the best sign of a brand is where somebody will actually pay money to be part of it. And we have members who pay £135 a year, 13,000 of them around the world, and they are active parts of our community. So we ride together, we have events together, there's forums, there's all sorts of things going on. That's the thing I'm most proud of. Do you have a, a single inspirational entrepreneur that you've looked to or a set of business ideals or models that you've ever referred to? There are two books that have driven Rafa on. One is a book called The Rider, which you won't have read, but it's it's about two hours worth of reading. You will understand cycling implicitly if you read The Rider by Tim Crabbe. The second book is a book called Built to Last by Collins and Porras, which is about the habits of long-term successful businesses and they looked at a study of many hundreds of brands and looked at the ones that were successful over 100 years and what were the common traits the common traits were having a big purpose 
having a sense of who you are, clear values and a clear sort of ideology in the business. I give that to our members of staff to read. So they'd be the two sort of books that I'd recommend. I mean, the, the inspiration for me would always be Steve Jobs. Um, you know, not going out and researching the market, but slaving over the details and having a vision and then being super focused on the customer experience and the product. And Avi, is there anybody in terms of an entrepreneur or a captain of business that has particularly inspired you? Absolutely. So as a proud South African, I, I have to just say that's not because he's South African, but obviously Elon Musk. I mean, I think if you think what Elon Musk is doing, uh, you know, in terms of pushing the boundaries forward in terms of absolutely everything, uh, how can one not aspire to be like him? Avi, you wrote an article online entitled Never Satisfied, Why Do Entrepreneurs Always Want More? So is this an insight into your own mind and your way of thinking? Absolutely. If, if I look back at you know, sort of the things that I've done, I think I'd always keep on doing. So in this case, it's DNA fit. Historically, it was was previous companies. And, you know, I always ask myself, OK, in five years time or three years time, when I exit out of DNA fit, what would I want to do? Would I be able to just sort of stop? And the truth is, no. I mean, I, I exited a company in 2012. I employed about 70 people or so, you know, had enough funds to do what I wanted to do probably for the rest of my life. And actually, a week later, I was immensely bored. I would say I sort of became a little bit depressed because this baby which you've built over the previous six years has just disappeared. And, you know, and I think you just need to keep... I think that as, as an individual who leads this business as well as being an entrepreneur, it's just about creating and doing things. And I think there's a passion which you have to do that and keep doing. And that's what I would keep on doing. And what are you most proud about in terms of your business? In terms of DNA Fit, in terms of what I'm most proud about within DNA Fit, I think it's just really uh, having this clear vision about changing the way fitness is looked at and disrupting fitness globally. And globally is a key word. So as a company, even though we employ 30 people in our core business, we have about 21 international partners. So we partner with 21 different countries. We report out in everything from you know uh, English, uh, you know Chinese, Arabic, Dutch, Spanish, Italian, and that shows me there's a big global movement and the opportunities that come in this business every day make me feel proud about what we've achieved as a brand. And if you had to give advice to somebody starting up a business, what would your single most important piece be? I think without sounding uh, pessimistic, I think it must be that, you know, you've got to prepare yourself uh, for everything not going as planned, but that's part of the journey. And I think if you can see these little failures that happen along the way or these stressful times along the way as just school fees, if I can use that term, you know, I think then you would see yourself progressing, you know, quite quickly. And it's about taking a risk, you know, there's no risk, no reward. I mean, when, when an individual starts out being an entrepreneur because that's what they want to do from the time they leave school or university, then it's somewhat easy because you don't have any, uh, you know, you don't have a mortgage, you don't have necessarily a family, you don't have responsibilities financially. So taking a risk and not succeeding is almost easier. And I think as as you get older and you have a family and you have a mortgage and you have all these things, it becomes a lot more stressful. The risk is a lot greater. But I would still say take the risk because if you can work for yourself uh, and achieve your, your, your inner visions and goals, whatever that business idea might be, it's hugely rewarding. Simon and Avi, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much and good luck with all your ventures for the future. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you again to my guests Simon Mottram from Rafa, Arvi Lazaro from DNA Fit, Sylvan Filippi, CTO of Virgin Formula E, Chris Reed, 
and our Brunch with Branson winners. And remember, Voom is currently on tour. So to find out more about upcoming dates or to sign up to pitch, you just have to head to virginmediabusiness.co.uk slash Voom, where you'll also find out about Voom Fibre, the ultra-fast business broadband network from Virgin Media Business. We'll be back with more entrepreneurial tales in a couple of weeks' time. Until then, from me, Nikki Beatty, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 